APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On March 30th, we recorded a video dialogue with Todd Norwood, Samantha Norwood, Ella Morello, Sarah Gallagher, and Kristen Tate on implementing telehealth in your practice. Here's that discussion. All right, everyone, welcome. I am Ellen Morello. I'm going to be talking to you guys about implementing telehealth in your PT practice stat. Um, this this Q&A today is in response to a webinar that we did last week. Um, I encourage you all to check out the APTA Learning Center if you are interested in seeing the recording of that webinar that we did last week. Uh, I am joined today by some amazing colleagues who have been practicing telehealth. Uh, I practice telehealth currently at Fizera, um, and I have been practicing exclusively telehealth for almost two years now. Um, and uh, so we have some amazing clinicians. I'm just going to hand it over to my colleague Todd to introduce himself, and then um, we'll introduce the rest of our speakers as well. Hi, I'm Todd Norwood. I work with Ellen at Fizera. I'm director of clinical services there. I'm also a board certified specialist in orthopedics and sports physical therapy. Um, you know, given given the situation we're in and staying at home, I'm also joined here by my wife, who will present, and our son, who's uh, thrilled thrilled to be on camera as well. Uh, I'm Samantha. I'm a senior uh, pediatric PT at Kaiser in Santa Clara. Um, juggling the uh, lack of daycare at the moment, like most of you. Um, I implement video visits as a part of my regular practice, and I'm happy to answer any questions about pediatrics. We'll hand it over to Sarah for an introduction. I'm Sarah Gallagher. I'm a physical therapist in Denver, Colorado, owner of a private practice here in Denver called South Valley Physical Therapy. And we specialize in neurologic and more specifically vestibular disorders. We implemented telehealth into our practice model approximately three years ago because we had so many patients who had difficulty accessing specialized care. They were uh, traveling long distances, flying in from other states, um, were too dizzy to come to the clinic, and that allowed us to still provide care to these patients um, who couldn't make it into our clinic. And then it has just expanded from that original model. So um, I can speak more to questions about neurologic and vestibular therapy and utilizing telehealth. Hi, my name is Kristen. Yeah, my name is Kristen Tate. Um, I'm the Enterprise Director of Operations at Agile Physical Therapy in Palo Alto, California. Um, we started telehealth there about a year and a half ago, but have been working with Todd and Ellen at Fazera for two-ish years. So we've been, um, you know, working on perfecting the telehealth implementation and execution process. Um, and I'm board certified in orthopedics as well as um, pelvic health therapy. So if there's any questions on pelvic floor, male or female, I'm happy to answer those. Awesome. So today we're just going to be mostly discussing clinical implementation of telehealth into your physical therapy practice. Um, I know during our webinar that we had um, last week, there were a number of questions about billing and a number of questions about Medicare e-visits and billing e-visits uh, through CMS. I just want to uh, kind of level set here that this is not an, a visit about e-visits. This is a, um, this is not a, a you know, talk about e-visits. This is a talk about telehealth, which, you know, is mostly live video streaming. Um, synchronous is kind of what we're meaning when we're talking specifically about telehealth physical therapy. Um, if you do have any questions about e-visits or any specific questions, um, you know, about implementing billing in your practice, I encourage you all to email advocacy at apta.org. Um, they would be happy to help you. Uh, I know uh, Sarah has a lot of experience billing uh, for telehealth services, so I'll let her kind of kick it off and just talk about some best practices if you are planning to bill insurance, um, and then we can switch over the focus to more clinical implementation. So Sarah, if you wanna chat about your experience in, in billing. Thanks, Alan. So our practice does bill insurance. Um, and it was a long, arduous process to get to that point. 
Uh, I know everybody's looking for a solution for having a low clinical volume right now and telehealth can be that solution, but there's not a quick fix for that. So our process and which is like many others who have implemented telehealth for reimbursement through insurance is a long process of going through your third party payer contracts, making sure that you are allowed to provide telehealth to their their members it is um, making sure that you have payment parity and payment coverage in your state. It is making sure that your uh, each one of your uh, patients has telehealth services covered in their plan. So it is actually quite a lot of work to build billing um, telehealth for insurance. It, for reimbursement. That is not to say that it can't be done. We are doing it. Um, others are doing it in, in other states as well. But every contract requires that communication. Um, you need to make sure you have malpractice insurance to do that and to cover, cover your care. Um, different insurance require different documentation, different modifiers. So you need to know the specifics of each one of those pairs in addition to can you just do it. So it just takes a lot of work on the front end to set that up. And we're in an environment right now where that's changing dramatically. So even though we had that set up for the last two and a half, three years, things are, are changing even for us in our practice and the way that we have to do billing based on what's coming out with telehealth becoming more widespread. So it's state to state, it's planned um, insurance coverage to insurance coverage, and it's also plan to plan specific to the beneficiary. And so you need to make sure you have all those ducks in a row before you start reimbursing. So. Um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> we did get um, a couple of questions here, Sarah. I don't know if maybe you can answer this, but do you provide informed consent to the patient? And um, do you have an example? Yes. Yeah, so you absolutely need to have um, informed consent with disclosures about the um, limitations that telehealth and potentially some of the risks or um, benefits and that needs to be done in advance of your, your telehealth session. In my state, in Colorado, there is some specific language that our state requires that we have included in our consent form. So you need to know if your state requires anything specific, but you do have to have uh, a telehealth consent in place. And um, maybe somebody else can speak to what their practice is too for consent form. Yeah, we have a similar process. I think we also need to remember to ask if they're currently in the state in which you are licensed. Um, if you're only licensed in California, but the patient is in Massachusetts. And again, some of these things are fluctuating with the COVID situation right now. So that really um, is, is a fluid. And what I'm saying is more relates to before some of the new regulation came out, but um, confirming that the patient is in the state in which you are licensed under normal circumstances is something that we do in addition to what Sarah said. Mm -hmm. Great. And there was another question here about um, if outpatient hospital PTs are able to bill for telehealth service since they don't have individual NPIs. I imagine that in that case, you would use your group practice NPI. I'm sure the practice like location has a, a specific tax ID and you can bill under the practice however the practice usually bills. Um, it is complicated, though, because hospital billing is different than um, than community billing. And therefore, you need to speak to your billing department about what the differences would be there and if you'd be able to do that. And that usually ties into the legal department in the hospital, too, because hospital based billing um, is based on the fact that there are physicians and providers on site. And so their contracts are different. And so that is a very, very complicated question. Um, there's no simple answer. And I, I, don't know, um, of, I don't know of any hospital systems that are doing it outside of um, Kaiser and a few others where they're just doing it internally, where their payer is sort of internal. So um, it's, it's a big question. Awesome. 
Thank you, Sarah. So, you know, I think in, in conclusion, we really encourage you to, if you are, you know, in an organization, work directly with your billing department on that. Um, and if you are, you know, individually, um, you know, billing for these services, then contact the plans that you are working with. A number of plans are making modifications to allow telehealth in, in the current environment with, with fighting the spread of COVID-19. So uh, contact the plans that you are, are working with currently um, and getting the specifics. Uh, there are a number of modifiers that are available for billing these services. Um, we can uh, send out some, there's tons of resources on the APTA website. Um, and the webinar that we did last week is also on APTA.org. Um, so, you know, th that's kind of just our, our stance on billing and would love to get into the meat and potatoes of, of what our experts are really here to talk about today, which is implementing telehealth clinically. Um, we have had some questions come in already. Um, it looks like... Can you give us an example of what a typical telehealth session looks like in regard to service delivery and two-way participation? Um, for this, maybe I'll, I'll kick it over to the Norwoods and we can hear about how this goes at, at Fizera and then how this is, is implemented in uh, pediatric practice as well. Sure, I mean, I, I really think it's not that much different than your typical practice, right? And, you know, maybe, if you think about an evaluation, I, I talk about that a lot during the, the webinar, but you're, you're still working through the same process. You're still working through your, your intake, you're looking at history, you're doing your subjective, you're doing a, a modified uh, objective exam, of course, you know, really more functional versus objective just because you can't do the, the you know, um, impairment-based test, right? You can't do I mean, a muscle test in this setting. You have to do something functional to get you that information. Uh, you can work, work through all that. And then, in, you know, in terms of patient education, I think that's going to be all the same. Obviously, uh, I'm a little limited here with my space, but typically I'm not. You, know, you, you can get up and you can demonstrate things for the patient. You can walk them through exercises. You can walk them through your assessment techniques um, as you need, right? You can demonstrate a range of motion or it, what have you. Uh, I think important things, right, is looking at the camera. Try to make sure you're looking at the camera because that's going to give the patient the idea that they have uh, eye contact. Make sure that your lighting looks good. It's going to be important. And then like, making sure that you have good physical space that's clean uh, is also important as well. So you can get up and, and move around a little bit and show them. You, If you want to walk through exercise with somebody, you can absolutely do that, right? Uh, I think the difference is in the clinic, we probably want to put our hands on somebody. That might be our tendency to put our hands on them to help correct technique. Now you're going to have to have good eyes and make sure that you've had them set up the camera where you want. And so we all know the exercises that we prescribe and we all know the common um, compensations or the common faults that you might see in a given exercise. So, you know, before you have somebody do that exercise, you might want to think about what are those faults that I'm likely to see and how might the camera need to be positioned so that I could see those faults uh, and then be able to correct them, right? And then now then it just comes down to your language and can you be specific in how you instruct somebody to change it and be flexible with how you, how you instruct people as well. Uh, to add for pediatrics, um, I try to connect to my parents before a video visit to, to give them an idea of what to expect. Um, I think as peds therapists and just therapists in general, sometimes we take for granted how people think that a therapy session might go and then especially doing it over um, a video platform. Um, so just letting them know, you know, let's find a space. Sorry, we're going to pass off the toddler. Um, find a space that, you know, they have room and are comfortable. I like to ask, hey, you know, maybe let's try and do it where you're doing tummy time. Um, a, that lets me know that hopefully they are doing tummy time and they have a place where they're doing that. Um, and to make sure that it's safe and uh, get an idea of, of the things that uh, they're doing throughout the day. Um, and just let them know that, hey, you know, to troubleshoot the video platform itself, how to connect. Um, and then from there, I let them know, you know, it's kind of like a FaceTime call. I think most people understand kind of how that, how that goes. Um, and I'll let them know, Hey, I'm going to you through different positions, um, and things to look at, um, using, I, I use a doll to help model kind of the things that I would I want the parents to do. Hey, let's try rolling like this and showing them what the doll, 
Um, I also can send my patients videos and pictures of things to kind of help supplement the things that we're talking about, um, which can be a good adjunct um, to the things that we're working on. Um, so those are kind of the biggest things from a Pete's perspective. Awesome. And maybe now we'll hear from Kristen and in, in implementing in women's health practice as well. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar to what Todd said as far as uh, making sure that the the camera is positioned appropriately. I also think that a lot of, you know, having gone through a residency and having multiple mentors, um, you know, pelvic PT is often thought of as a very high man, potentially manual therapy, manual assessment type specialty. And I think there, it kind of requires an ability to change somewhat of our philosophy as far as how we are assessing these patients. And like we talked about last week in our webinar, um, taking a really good thorough subjective can get you really far, um, especially in pelvic health. And, you know, I used some examples in that webinar, just speaking to, people's subjectives and um, being able to come to a pretty clear diagnosis through what they're telling you and the objective assessment that you don't need to put your hands on them, that you can assess um, range of motion through the video through the video feed. Um, and then you can also have them self-palpate their pelvic floor in a laying down position. They can kind of put their hands on, you know, bulbospongiosis and um, try to feel some pelvic floor activation there. Um, in a seated position, they can put their hand on their coccyx and feel coccygeal flexion extension. And then in a standing position, you can have them again, internally rotate their feet and put their hand on their coccyx and try to create that mind body connection to feel their pelvic floor working. Um, and, you know, to speak again to the webinar last week, we had talked about that, you know, there are some people that will need in-person pelvic floor PT, and I'm not advocating that everyone needs to um, be appropriate for telehealth because that's just certainly not the case, especially in complex cases. But I think in a lot of cases, we can do a very thorough assessment and research supports this um, that is not only satisfying to the patient, but effective. And we can get effective results through telehealth um, for for a lot of cases, but I'm I'm certainly not claiming that everybody 100% is going to be appropriate for telehealth from a pelvic floor standpoint. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, and we've also been getting some questions about implementing, um, you know, in balance training and in in vestibular therapy. So, Sarah, if you want to give a summary, sure. I'll, I'll give a couple examples. So I think as um, everyone has noted is there's just a lot of adaptation and you do a lot of adaptation in the clinic that you're used to doing. And so this seems like a different mode of delivery, but you're really just adapting your communication and what you can do to gather the best uh, data you can. So people always ask me about ocular motor exam, for example. So I have the patient come very close to their camera. So here you can see me. And then if I'm the provider, I have them follow my finger slowly keeping it within the screen, then I can watch now I'm the patient. And you can actually see my smooth pursuits there, right? Could you guys see it? <laughs> then for saccades, I have them look at my two fingernails here and, and instructs the patient to go back and forth. So as the patient, that would look like this. It's a little hard to create on myself, but you can see there's a lot you can see there. For virgins, I have the patient look at their thumb and now bring it closer to your nose. Tell me when it becomes double right there. Okay, can you estimate how far away is your thumb from the bridge of your nose? Well, it's about three inches. So again, you're getting be the best data you can possibly get and then coming back out for divergence as well. Um, a lot of questions I get for BPV is how do you, can you assess BPV over, over telehealth? And I do that quite a bit. And I, um, I think this comes back to 
who is appropriate to provide telehealth and to what your scope of practice is. I might in a regular clinic day have 10 BPP patients. And um, you know, as of three years ago, I didn't use goggles at all. We didn't have them in the clinic. So now we have several sets, but I learned because I didn't have the goggles, many um, observation tricks and tips to help me pull out what was really happening if the person was fixing their nystagmus. And again, because I have such a high volume of BPV, this um, is really within a very comfortable scope of my practice. So I'm very comfortable um, treating someone and assessing them over telehealth. Now, pre-COVID, if I felt like I was not getting the information, let's say I needed to differentiate between apogeotrophic and geotrophic nystagmus, and I can't view their eyes via video, then I would have them come in the next session. I would give my best my my best information, clinical decision, give them homework to do. If they're not improving, have them come in the next session for a goggle assessment. So I think um, as we have spoken to in our previous webinar, this isn't always for everyone, every visit all the time. And so you're continuing to use your clinical decision making of, of what's working, not what's not working. And then just lastly, from a vestibular standpoint, um, many people will use the criteria that imbalance or fall risk is a contraindication. And that may be appropriate for you. For my practice, it's not because most of my patients are a fall risk and have vertigo or dizziness. And we utilize um, telehealth specifically for those patients because they can't come into the clinic. So some of the things that you can do is head orientation and space with back support, then removing back support, eyes closed. Then you have them stand feet apart. Maybe you have a, a a partner or a family member, caregiver, guard for you. They're standing in the corner. Now they're progressing to feet together, eyes open, eyes closed. So you modify just as you would in the clinic. Um, if somebody was a more severe fall risk, you would use um, a different level of guarding and protection than you would as somebody who was not. So again, it's just your, your typical clinical decision-making, but modified via video. Awesome. I think we got a really good uh, pediatric clinical question here for Sam. Um, for pediatric patients who are at an age of walking slash talking, do you have any suggestions for how to select interventions, activities, and organize the session when we need to rely on parents to manage child's behavior at home? So I think um, this is an issue, right, that you run to even in your clinic sessions as a PhD. Um, so I think the benefit of a telehealth visit is I get to see their real-time setup. So, you know, in the, in the office setting, we may be working on pull to stand or cruising and we're at a high-low table or we're at a play table or we're at a cube chair, whatever we have in our office. And I'll usually say, okay, you know, what is your kiddo pulling to stand on at home? And they may say their couch or their ottoman. And I'll have to say, okay, well, do you feel like it's, higher than this, it's lower than this. Um, and so being able to see them in their um, in their home setting, I can say, oh, you know what? That um, table that you have right there that's sitting next to you, let's try that one. Um, sorry, we're having an angry meltdown over here. Uh, and so that um, is a way to give them that, that real-time information. Um, like any peak session, I think you can have the best laid intentions as to how you want your flow to go. Um, and that's kind of the that art of being a peace therapist is right being able to change things in the moment. And I that's really no different um, in the clinic or at home. Um, I think a lot of times for me, you know, in the clinic, I may have a parent, they drop their kid off, they're on their phone, they're sitting there during their session. Um, and I have to step in and be the parent when those behaviors happen. Uh, the nice thing about a video visit is that the parent has to be a little bit more engaged. They have to, you know, try and implement some of these ideas. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, by nature of just that setup, I think that just um, requires a little bit more engagement or at least in a different way. I'm, I'm not the, the babysitter in that moment that sometimes can happen. Um, so for me, it's, it's been a nice, a nice way, especially for those older kids, 
um, to have that direct uh, recommendation for how to do things in their home and they can be a little bit uh, more consistent with it. Thank you, Sam. There's been a, a lot of questions uh, kind of about implementing this in an outpatient practice um, and also kind of questions revolving, revolving around frequency of visits, how you determine how often to see someone over telehealth, um, what the duration of those visits is. Uh, maybe, Kristen, you can speak a little bit about how, how Agile has done that um, and, you know, sort of how you determine uh, the, the clinical frequency and duration required for for telehealth visits um, and then how you kind of determine yeah, the I mean, hybrid I, model when to, to do the telehealth visits as well. Yeah, we've, we've done a hybrid model as well at, tel, at Agile. And um, I do think it just depends on the patient and their situation and what's going on with them. Um, I don't think there's any specific cadence that we have told our therapists that they absolutely need to stick to. Um, I, I think that there are sometimes financial or insurance limitations that, you know, a person might follow up every three or four weeks, but then um, you're kind of monitoring them through um, remote patient monitoring, which I did see a, a little bit of a question there, which um, can be facilitated by the platform that you, you're, you're using. So, um, you know, we, we've been using a platform called BlueJay, which has like a HIPAA compliant chat feature. In Fizera, there's a HIPAA compliant chat feature that just allows you to check in on the patient. So that can substitute for some of the visits, but ultimately you just want to have the frequency and duration that is going to give you the most um, effective outcomes and patient satisfaction. I think that varies case by case, but we certainly use the chat feature to um, supplement and sometimes replace some of the visits depending on what's going on. I had a patient that was, you know, traveling for a, a while to some different areas. And so we just chatted about how things were going and what exercises he was doing because he, he just really couldn't um, get in for, for a virtual visit and that, that seemed to work out for him well. And I know you have to uh, jump off here shortly, Kristen. So I just want to let the audience know that if there are any questions for Kristen, um, please get those in now as she um, will have to be signing off here shortly. Uh, and then we can continue the discussion um, with the rest of our group here. Um, I'll wait for, for a moment just to see if there are any final questions for, for Kristen. Uh, one question that maybe we can answer real quick uh, was about HIPAA compliance and, and technology. Um, I think the, the question was about email and if email is a secure platform. Um, I, I think you know, all of our panelists will, will probably have the, the same thoughts on that. Um, you know, you, you do still wanna be very careful and thoughtful about protecting your patient's privacy. Uh, if you are using any softwares, um, then uh, you need to have a BAA with those softwares. So if, for example, Google has like, you know, you can have a BAA with certain Google functions so you can um, you can store patient protected health information uh, on there, but you don't want to be emailing things out broadly unless you have some sort of release form for that. Um, I don't know if anyone else has a comment about that. Um, yeah, I mean, we tend not to use um, email at Agile. We tend to try to go through the HIPAA compliant chat chat feature. Um, but there's other platforms out there like Doxy um, and Zoom that don't have those kind of chat features. So I think that's potentially when you would enact what you're talking about, Ellen. Mm -hmm. All right, looks like there's no specific questions right now, but if there's a way for people to contact you, would you like um, to have people contact yeah, that's you. That's totally fine. Yeah, I'll just give my work email, which is my name, Kristen, at agilept.com. And Kristen is spelled C H R I S T I N at agilept.com. Um, so I'd be open to discussing again. Um, you know, the billing is very specific. So any specific billing questions, I would um, kind of go with. Ellen's advice to email was it advocacy at apta.com something like that mm -hmm. um, for specific billing questions but if you have questions on public health implementation orthopedic implementation um, I'm happy to answer those so thank you so much for your time and we'll see you guys later
Thank you, Kristen. Um, okay, so uh, back to some questions that we've been getting over here. Um, one question just came in per, probably for Sarah, but how do you protect yourself if a, if a patient falls at home? So we have an, um, in our policy and procedures, we first have criteria about who is appropriate and have screen, screening criteria for who is most appropriate for our telehealth sessions within our scope. And like I said, within our scope, we feel comfortable um, having some patients who have imbalance because that that is who we treat and we feel like we have um, the clinical decision making in place to adapt via telehealth. Um, but in if in any situation, if your patient has an emergency situation, a fall, a heart attack, um, any any a fire. <laughs> Anything could happen just like it could happen in the clinic. You need to have an emergency plan in place. So part of our policy and procedures, um, we need to identify the patient's location. And that's so that, one, we can be in compliance with where I'm licensed in Colorado. My patient needs to be located in Colorado at the time of the telehealth session. So that covers my compliance and that also confirms their location. So if there's an emergency, I can send an ambulance directly to their location. And then we also document an emergency contact in every note so that we, um, that's our emergency plan. So, but again, we are using very adapted clinical decision-making to how to make it a safe activity. And so that might be very stepwise in terms of balance where we're working four or five sessions in seated head, head orientation, vestibular um, integration um, before we're even moving to standing, building that, that foundation. So that if that's not something that's already in your scope of practice, that is something that's already in our scope of practice in, in our clinic, um, then, then that's probably not the right patient for you um, to feel comfortable and safe to do that. You know, our, our criteria also extends to any cognitive deficits, any hearing impairments, visual impairments, tech aptitude, um, and, and whether the person has, has the ability to have an emergency contact, for example. So um, that has to be very specific to your practice. And I think this is a good time um, to just point out that, again, telehealth is not for every patient and it's not necessarily for every provider either in, in all scenarios. So even though everyone's kind of in, um, it's getting a lot of attention right now in this past month, there's quite a lot of competency that we have done as providers on this panel to feel very competent and um, confident in our practice. And that included a lot of um, simulations, practice, um, working through our policies and procedures, different scenarios. And so that's a step that you cannot step, skip in implementing in telehealth because unexpected things will, will happen. Don't expect them to not happen. That's something that you can count on. So you definitely want to think through all of these scenarios and have in your policies and procedures all the um, scenarios that could happen uh, addressed. Awesome. Yeah, it, you know, there's a, such a need to make sure you have your emergency protocols in place. Um, I think you made a really good point there too about making sure you are licensed in the state where the patient is located. And if you are treating patients in that state, having a way to um, you know, dispatch local EMS services in, in those those states as well. Um, I think that that is really important. Uh, May I add one more thing? Is sure. just with people having low volumes right now and maybe extra time, this is a great way to work on your competency. So partner up with other PTs or family members, practice your lighting, practice your um, your hands, your orientation, your instructions, your verbal instructions, because you have to practice that modification in order to be good at it. It's not, it's, it's not exact and we all are, 
became, you know, becoming PTs is a practice and becoming PTs in outpatient scenario is a practice and experience. And this also requires practice and experience. So start doing lots of simulations and practice and working through things and different scenarios. And that will help you uh, with your clinical modifications. Thanks, like hop in and sort of echo what Sarah's saying there. And it works if you do it with other PTs, but you have to remember to play like you're naive because otherwise you'll do what you know your partner wants you to do. So really the friends, family, people who aren't experienced in the medical field are far better for getting your practice and, and trying to understand how to communicate with somebody. Because you do with the PT, they're, we're just going to move into the right position so you can see it yeah. uh, almost without thinking about it because we kind of know what's coming next. So we're actually, unless you as a PT intentionally make yourself naive, um, you'll make it too easy for your colleague and you actually won't get the true value out of that practice. I mean, there, there will be some value, but you will not maximize your time yeah. in doing that. Good point. Uh, Todd, there was another question in here, a private outpatient ortho clinic that is heavy manual based. Um, how do I educate my patients right now that telehealth, a telehealth visit can be worth it and beneficial when reaching their goals? I think, you know, this, this follows up a, sort of just the question about what about manual therapy? Um, so maybe if you can. For sure. And I, I think that might be challenging if you've already started down this path of a, a heavy manual therapy tr based treatment. I mean, I mean, I assume at some point in your treatment, right, you're transitioning them to exercise because exercise is usually one of the you know, most effective things that we can do for a patient. The way I always look at this, I mean, independent of telehealth, but just even when I was in practice in the clinic is a patient sees me for an hour, two hours, maybe, you know, two and a half hours in a, in a given week, but then they have all this time when they're at home, right? Or when they're at work or whatever it is, hundreds of hours every week, they're not seeing me that, I, that I'm really not influencing them. So it's really about giving them that education of what, what are the things that you can teach them to do that are gonna carry over for the rest of their day, for the rest of their week. Uh, I think that's, that's the value. I think the value is in checking in with them um, giving them access to you, uh, even if it's not manual therapy. Because I think sometimes we think, well, we, we do these things with our hands and that provides value for patients. But honestly, I think it's what our mind is that it provides the value for the patients and communicating the things that we've learned and our, our wisdom and our, um, our knowledge and our expertise from our practice that's really valuable for patients. So I think sell, selling them on those things, right? That yes, my hands may make, make you feel better, but it's the, the therapeutic exercise that's made, the habits that you, you adopt, the, the things that I've taught you to do for the rest of the week, the rest of the month, that are really going to lead to you feeling better for a long time. Awesome, thanks. Uh, this is just a quick reminder that if you have any questions, you can add them in the comments and we will try to get to, to as many questions as possible. Um, you know, one question I'm seeing now is uh, about the role of PTAs for for that. You know, again, going back to what we were talking about, about knowing your your state practice acts, I think that's really important. So I think all of the super supervision terms. Um, so if you are practicing in, a, you know, a state, um, just knowing the state practice act and abiding by the, the terms put in your state practice act. Uh, your local state chapters probably have more resources as well about um, supervision and if there are any modifications to serve more people in this time of crisis. Um, that is, is one great resource. We, we encourage you all to check out the resources at apta.org slash telehealth as well. Um, I know a lot of you have been looking for samples for informed consent forms, and I think the APTA website has um, some samples on the telehealth uh, resources page as well. Um, and then checking out the webinar that we did, uh, which has been recorded on the APTA Learning Center. Um, awesome. And maybe another question that's come through is about remote patient monitoring. If we could, we could chat a little bit about remote patient monitoring softwares and, and what remote patient monitoring is and how that looks. Um, maybe Todd, if you want to take that one. Sure. So, I mean, I think remote patient monitoring has a very specific definition when you look at a uh, CPT code and what it what it means um, as far as it's you know measuring <laughs> physiologic metrics over a certain period of time. Uh, that's that's what it's defined as when you look at the CPT codes. If you think about it, just in what does it mean for our practical 
practice and how might we apply it and how do we uh, gain value from doing things in and using that data. Uh, I would look at it this way in the terms of typically when we do in-person sessions, the only time we get feedback from a patient is when we see them, right? We see them on Monday, we see them on Thursday, say, and this is when we get the feedback from the patient. And those are potentially our only times where we could change course or make corrections to a plan of care. Whereas if you have the ability to collect data continuously about your patient, whether that's how they're doing with their exercise, feedback on exercise, uh, pain, functional scores, you name it, right? You can, you can ask anyone any question, you can collect that data, uh, taking that data in, observing it, analyzing it, it gives you the ability to have a better picture of how your patient's changing over time. And I think uh, Kristen might have touched on this earlier, this is where maybe your visit frequency can change because you now have these data points about your patient and you can understand how your patient's progressing over time without necessarily uh, meeting with them face to face. So you can gather all that data and then, you know, over time you can make changes to the treatment program. So you may see that they're not responding to the treatment program fairly early on, right, 24 hours in, and now you can have, you know, schedule a follow-up chat sooner with them or you get on the phone with them or you can make a, a change to their care plan. Uh, to get them back on the right course. So that's sort of how I think about it. Now, as far as what you can bill for, I think that's a whole different discussion. I'm not gonna go down that path right now. Yes, as a reminder, any billing questions, um, we will direct those to advocacy at APTA.org um, or finding more information on the APTA.org website um, for any specific billing questions. Okay. Um, we did get one question about if if we could only perform initial evaluations or um, so I open that to anyone who cares to respond, but. Um, so it, it depends on if, if you're talking about reimbursement for uh, telehealth, then it depends on the specific payer. Um, and it also really depends on your state practice act. So some state practice acts have um, language in their practice act that uh, don't allow you to perform telehealth evaluations. So again, you need to go back to those basic fundamentals. So your state practice act as physical therapist and physical therapy assistant, then you need to look at your state telehealth legislation and you can find that information from the Center of Connected Health Policy. And that's a very easy resource to look up your state telehealth legislation. That's not specific to physical therapists, but that is what physical therapists would need to abide by if they are practicing telehealth in their own state. So you need to know if you're what you're allowed to do from, from those two pieces of legislation. And then if you're talking about for reimbursement, then you also need to know what the payer allows as well. So that would be a third piece of it. So um, it's the, the question is, can an evaluation be done? The answer is definitely yes. Um, but you need to know what you are allowed to do. And if you are also um, competent to do. Awesome. Um, you know, one one question, I think that's really important that we touch on is uh, achieving outcomes. In, in our clinical practice and, and how are we ensuring that our patients are improving and um, you know that that we are seeing outcomes in this delivery mode. I think that's you know the, the most important thing that we should all be focused on as clinicians anyways. Um, so how how are we looking at outcomes um, in and we'll go through you know for for each of you to determine how you're assessing outcomes and uh, making sure that patients are actually benefiting from the service delivery modes. So let's let's start with you, Todd, and then we'll go to Sam and then uh, Sarah. So I think this is one of the ways where it doesn't have to differ tremendously from what you're doing in your traditional practice. We still have validated outcome measures that we can use. Uh, you can use your Oswestry, you can use your lower serenity functional scale, you know, pick your measure, you can still use that. That's still gonna be valid and that's gonna give you a good source of data. Asking the patient is always valuable, right? Hey, how, how, how well recovered are you? If you know, 100% is normal, where are you right now? Relative to that 100% to track that over time. I think that's still, I always ask that in person. I think that's still a valuable question. Um, 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, some tests you can't do. Right? I'm not going to be able to say, uh, yes, your, you know, your quad is five out of five strength, but can I assess you functionally? Can I see you squat, single leg squats at the stand, go up or down stairs in your home? Uh, any number of things I can look at and observe your function. So I think with those things all together, you get you get a picture. So, and I think we we do this in our normal practice. You never want to look at just one thing to say yes, this patient has done has been successful in physical therapy. It's, it's going to be a constellation of things that go together and, and make you say, yes, this patient ha, you know, has reached their goal, uh, never just the one thing. So I, I think put those three things together, outcome measures, asking your patient how they're, how they're doing, and then some sort of a, a functional assessment um, because we know we can't do all of the objective and impairment-based tests. Uh, I think for PEDS, that goes along the same, the same path. Um, you know, obviously, some of the more uh, direction-based testing, the Peabody, the BOT, um, are hard to implement. The parents don't have the, you know, specific equipment for that measure um, or following tests with, with multiple um, directions in that non-clinical setting. Um, you know, asking the parent, how is your kid rolling? Um, and then seeing them roll, obviously, you can say, oh, check, <laughs> they're rolling. Um, so using more of those observation uh, based things uh, for peeps, kind of the same for, that Todd talked about with orthopedics. Um, our patients at Kaiser are also given um, satisfaction outcomes, just like they would for an in-office visit. It's kind of viewed the same, the video in the office visit. Um, so we can, when we as providers get that data, it's differentiated, um, you know, which visits were this and which visits were, which visits were video, which visits were in person. Um, to see if those scores are changing, uh, which will be interesting just with this COVID time as we're having more video visits. Um, historically, at least um, in our PEATS department, they, they haven't been different, um, but that's kind of how, how we're doing things. Um, so in our practice, we use commonly the dizziness handicap inventory, which is a subjective measurement of function that is uh, related to I think Sarah's internet must have fallen off. Are you guys seeing Sarah? No, okay. All right, well, Sarah will be right back, hopefully. Um, awesome, Any? Uh, so I'm taking a look at some of the other questions that we're getting here. Um, are there any ways for PTs to, to deploy new, oh, there you are, okay. We'll, we'll go right back to you, sorry. <laughs> Um, so we use the dizziness handicap inventory quite a bit at an initial evaluation and uh, at discharge. And we use other outcome measures at all, but that's a one that translates quite nicely for telehealth. Um, we have a version that the patient can actually fill out online. And so we can collect their data that way. We just send them the link for it. Um, and then we can get that data back. Uh, but I think back to Sam and, and Todd's point is that you don't use a single piece of information. A lot of times our patients will still say that they are severely dizzy according to the dizzy handicap inventory, but they're now driving. They're now about to work part-time. They're now um, going to social gatherings, whereas none of that was happening in the beginning. So you use a lot of that functional information. And I think that's, that's um, telehealth has the ability to look more at the person's overall function, especially when you're talking about in their native environment, rather than a specific impairment um, or outcome measure. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. I think this is a really good question for everyone to, you know, talk about as we've all had this, this interest and experience, but um, how well usually does the patient adapt to the video platform, keeping the camera on themselves <laughs> while doing functional assessments and training? Um, we'll, we'll, whoever wants to get started, I think we all can comment on the, the nuances of negotiating camera angles. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in just, um, I, I have, I, so yes, I think if you, if you coach the patient enough, uh, I think that's one of the things you have to do right when you connect is just give them a, you know, develop your spiel, whatever, whatever it is, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, right when you get on with them and give them just a, a very high level overview of kind of what you're going to need and explain to them what they'll need to do. Cause I, I guarantee you that a lot of your patients are going to, 
you know, come on and they're going to be holding their phone like this, right? And they're, they're looking at themselves, which is great while you're chatting with them. Um, depending on how long you take for a subjective, there are might get a little tired, but really getting them to say, hey, let's get you in a comfortable spot. Let's get you in a spot where maybe you have some space. And then the thing I always tell people is go find a coffee mug because uh, it's, it's going to be sturdy enough and prop your phone up against it. And so you don't have to hold on to it. Everybody's got a coffee mug or a glass or something laying around their house uh, that they can prop their phone up against. Some people have phone stands. Some people have uh, pop sockets or, or what have you to prop their phone up. But everybody's got a coffee mug. So if all else fails, throw that out there. And that seems to work pretty well for a lot of people. Um, I've, I've seen patients do all sorts of crazy things. And sometimes like your patients, people are, people are sharp and creative. And so your patient might surprise you in what they do to get that phone propped up so they can uh, move freely. Um, just to add for for pediatrics, sorry, we're currently using kids' toys on the counter to prop up mommy's phone, um, is that sometimes if it's just mom or just dad with the kiddo, that can be hard to then try and move a baby um, through position. So in addition to kind of what Todd suggested, um, if siblings are around, they can be really awesome special assistants, um, right, even in the clinic. You know, getting to be the PT's assistant is, is you know, the special job, so making a big deal about it. Um, can be a helpful kind of thing to tweak as well. Yeah, and and for me, especially when I'm doing BPV, I as the first time will always ask for someone else to be present to manage the camera, so I can have the um, patient doing the maneuver and having another person manage the device. So if I need to see different angles from different directions, but I don't want the patient to move, then I um, will have an assistant. But usually by the second time I see them, if I need to see them again for BPV, then they can just prop me up on their nightstand, usually against um, the, the, um, the lamp, and I can just angle it so that I can see most of their bed, and then I'm able to evaluate exactly what they're doing and how to instruct them after we've done it once with a helper. So, so and similar to Sam's model, get sometimes need a helper. <laughs> I think, you know, there was a good follow-up question about do people use their phones or their computers, and I think that really ultimately depends on what type of softwares that you're using to conduct the telehealth sessions. Um, there's a number of different softwares out there. So uh, making sure you have a HIPAA compliant software, there's a number of very affordable options on the market. Um, the APTA has a link out to a matrix of different softwares that you can use and evaluate to, um, to implement telehealth quickly and easily uh, and quite affordably as well. So um, we can uh, make sure to share that that resource as well. Um, it was discussed during the webinar, which you can see uh, the recording of on the APTA Learning Center. Um, I just want to let everyone know that we've got a little bit less than 10 minutes left here. Um, looks like we've got about eight minutes left here. So if there are any final questions, please make sure to get them in on the chat right now. Um, and uh, if anyone needs to contact any of our panelists. Uh, maybe we can just share our, our contact information um, for any additional clinically related questions. Um, and if there are any specific billing questions, please send those to advocacy at APTA.org. Um, so Sarah, if you want to share your contact information and then we'll <laughs> sure. Um, I do want to just quickly speak. You, you, if you need to contact me or like to contact me, um, it's Sarah with an H at southvalleypt.com. Um, and I have gotten a lot of emails <laughs> recently about questions. So um, be patient. And I am usually just directing you to other resources, which I want to just take a minute to do right now is um, the APTA, the health policy section has a page on uh, COVID and crisis and telehealth, and they have amazing resources. Every day they're working to put out more resources that can be used by clinics right away. So Ellen already mentioned the um, matrix, which the matrix is a list of video platforms that you can use and some more information about it and the HIPAA compliance and, and whatnot. So that's a great resource that's on there now. Um, we're also putting out a patient satisfaction a survey that you can use for your patients who use 
telehealth services, this is a great time to gather uh, information about um, satisfaction because we're, we're the APTA is working really hard to lobby for legislation to reduce barriers for access to telehealth and, and physical therapists to provide telehealth, um, not only to commercial players, but especially for Medicare. So we need to, as providers, use this time to collect testimonials, some of the barriers, some of our patients' issues that they're not getting treatment, um, and then also their satisfaction. So I want you to um, go check out the HPA, and then you can also find resources there of how to uh, contact your congressman, congressperson um, to advocate for legislation that decreases some of the barriers of physical therapists providing telehealth. So that maybe in a year from now, we don't have to have all these reimbursement questions because um, the, the roads have been paved. <laughs> Thank you. Soapbox done. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Todd, we'll have you share your, your contact and then Sam. Yeah, mine's pretty easy. Just Todd at Fazera.com. Um, so I think I'd say the same thing as Sarah. You know, APTA is doing a fantastic job right now of getting resources available. Um, also, I think we mentioned earlier, Center for Connected Health Policy. They have a lot of great resources that you can look at as well. Um, I will try my best to get to get back to you if you send me an email. Uh, I can't promise it's going to be immediate, but I, I, I will flag it and I, I'll try to give you a thoughtful response. Uh, my email is samantha.d, as in dog, uh, dot norwood at kp.org is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome. And for me, I, I would actually encourage uh, LinkedIn, Ellen Morello. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and Ellen at Fizero.com. Uh, same with Todd, you know, for very, for, for, for specific questions, I think, um, you know, the APTA is the best resource force, um, but, you know, happy to help uh, where I can. Um, there's a couple of technical questions um, about, you know, sending forms and consent forms. Um, I don't know if we, there are some sample consent forms on the Centers for Connected Health Policy website. Um, I think, Sarah, do you have a sample form? Um, HPA is putting out these resources as well. And again, there's sort of more templates that you can modify for your own state and practice, but, um, but the HPA section is really, and the telehealth page are, uh, of the APTA are trying to put out as many uh, resources as possible that clinics can use right now. And I think um, we just want to emphasize that this this is sort of a marathon in place now. Don't just try to jump in and, and solve your problems for today because these are long-term problems that we need to solve and getting telehealth in place um, in the right way is quite important. Um, so use the resources available and do your research and your due diligence, put in the time um, to do that. This is um, a lot of physical therapists are jumping towards cash P PT right now. And that's not the environment we're moving into in terms of our economy. A lot of people don't have that option. So just be mindful that the long game is really to get insurance reimbursement for this and Medicare reimbursement for these services. Awesome. Um, a couple of other questions came coming through uh, about uh, liability. I don't know if we we touched on liability, but you know most malpractice insurance plans um, do cover telehealth. So if you have any questions about that, you can contact your specific malpractice insurance, uh, whoever provides your malpractice insurance. Um, we only have a, a couple of minutes left here, so I don't know if there's uh, any other concluding comments or questions that you guys have seen come through that you'd like to address before we wrap up. I think we, we are sharing our emails. Um, you can find us all on LinkedIn. I 
again, encourage you all to check out the webinar that has been recorded, which is on the APTA Learning Center. Um, and then follow up with advocacy at APTA.org if you have any specific billing questions. Um, and we we are excited to get this information out there. We have been practicing telehealth for, for years. So we were early adopters trying to convince a lot of people of the benefits of telehealth early on when a lot of therapists had some doubts. So we're really excited to see therapists um, getting into this space and, and trying to implement telehealth in their practices. Uh, it's unfortunate that it was a forced situation and so, and due to the COVID crisis, but we are really happy to support anyone as they make this transition into telehealth with our clinical experience um, and our you know, experience implementing this. Um, any other closing thoughts? Thank you. Thank you, APTA, for all the behind the scenes work that's being done. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. They're amazing resources, um, you know, not just coming out with the, the COVID uh, APTA.com, org slash coronavirus is that correct i think and uh the apta.org slash telehealth has some amazing amazing resources uh, as well as the hpa section so um, please go to to those uh, resources for a number of inform uh you know different resources um and anything else would be happy to help Thank you all for joining us live and uh, stay healthy. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA has set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.